but it flips and becomes just as harmful when you find out that's not how life works. That's not how your body works. You can't just turn a dial and set it at a point, you know, and then you just continue to believe that you're some kind of failure and not worth it, you know. So in order to do that, you try to exercise even more control in order to change that. And it just becomes this horrible, horrible, vicious cycle. But it has so much to do with with diet culture, making people feel like a failure. You're listening to Becoming Wildly Resilient, brought to you by University of Kentucky Human Resources, Health and Wellness. In this series, we'll explore a variety of well-being topics with experts from the university community in physical, emotional, nutritional, and financial health. Join us, and together we'll discover how we can thrive at work, home, and beyond. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Becoming Wildly Resilient. I'm your host, Jacob Hester. Returning to the podcast this month is my colleague, Vanessa Oliver, who you heard from back in episode eight. Vanessa is a registered dietitian nutritionist with UKHR Health and Wellness. She's also a certified intuitive eating counselor, which you'll learn more about soon. In this episode, we'll talk about repelling the pernicious weed that is diet culture. You will hear us discuss what diet culture is and why it is problematic for our physical, emotional, and social well-being, how diet culture has disguised itself as wellness culture recently, what it means to have an anti-diet mindset, and ways we can overcome and dismantle diet culture when we're on an anti-diet path. Before you get into our conversation, this is your friendly reminder to hit the follow button wherever you may be listening so that you don't miss any future episodes. And don't forget, you're encouraged to reach out with any feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics. You can do that by emailing us at healthandwellness at uky.edu. And now, here's my conversation with Vanessa Oliver. Vanessa, welcome. Excited to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jacob. It's great to be here. For the listeners that don't know you or didn't catch your first episode, uh, can you tell them a little bit about yourself outside of work? Outside of work, um, I love to eat and cook and garden and run and bike and hike. A little bit of everything. Yes. It's a good thing you're a dietitian. It seems like it fits nicely into your lifestyle. Yeah, usually. <laughs> so I added a fun segment a couple episodes back um, where I have these conversation starters and I pull a random one from the deck and we both answer the question. So these are always kind of personally based. They're a little more fun um, okay. and get to know you a little bit better as well. So here we go. Mm. What do you miss about childhood? What do I miss about childhood? Oh, um, the beach. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not like a generally like a warm and fuzzy person. Um, and both of my parents are still alive. And I don't have like a lot of very strong, either positive or negative memories about childhood. Honestly, like it happened and that's great. And now I'm here because of it. But yeah, I don't know. I guess being able. So, I mean, the beach sounds like a really surface answer, but I grew up on the shoreline. I love the way 
that the buildings look and the air smells and of course, you know, just visually that, that sort of environment. So being as I'm now in Kentucky and landlocked state, love it, have been here forever, but, uh, maybe, maybe it has something to do with that, that kind of environment. Yeah. I would say mine is that like freedom that you have as a kid where you don't really have like a care in the world about most things, generally speaking. Um, so you can just kind of do, do what you want to do in it, that exploration and everything is new and the ability just to find fun and everything, um, is something I think that we seek as adults a little bit now too. Um, so that's definitely, I think that's what I miss about childhood. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I didn't know I had it when I did. <laughs> that's why it doesn't stand out. <laughs> Sometimes we don't know how good we have it. Nope. <laughs> Any of that complaining we did when we were 12 years old was really looking back. You're like, man, why was I complaining about this? Yeah. It's like, try being an adult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're in charge of everything. Yeah. Uh, so what about in your role as a dietitian for HR Health Wellness? So I have a colleague, Karen Brylan McNeese, and as the two dietitians for UKHR Health and Wellness, we do the nutrition programming um, for our population. So that's employees and retirees and their respective spouses. And uh, what that looks like, you know, it changes day to day, um, but there's a, a weekly nutrition program called Eat Well that we facilitate. There is a CSA voucher program where employees on a health plan are able to um, get a specific amount of money toward the purchase of a CSA share. That's what I talked about on the last episode a lot. Um, we do one-on-one -on -one consults um, about all kinds of nutrition questions, and we'll do cooking demos, um, a lot of culinary programming in the form of blogs and social media, and then we'll do presentations and, and some other sort of little one-off uh, events or programming throughout campus or off campus for, uh, for campus organizations. So, so we stay busy, um, but it's never the same thing two days in a row. Yeah. So what led you to becoming a dietitian? I was a restaurant manager and um, needed to get out of that, <laughs> actually. Yeah. I, I've always worked in... Um, in or with food of some sort. And, and I liked managing a restaurant, some aspects of it, but you know, it's always hard to be the person in charge. Um, but I definitely wanted to sort of build on the interest in food that I've had ever since I can remember. Um, and I was also interested in seeing or exploring kind of what the academic and healthcare side of food could be. I was coming at it very much from a service orientation, from a hospitality orientation, um, coming at it a little bit from an agricultural orientation as well. I worked for a local farm for many years um, in Scott County. And yeah, I was just sort of interested in exploring what else I could learn about food. Um, and studying nutrition seemed like a natural fit. Yeah. I feel like it probably gives you like kind of an interesting perspective too that um, you may miss out on without a little bit of that life experience too. I, I really do think that life experience is an incredibly important part of any sort of allied healthcare position, but specifically with nutrition and food um, and having 
that one-on-one relationship with people when you're doing counseling, because you have to recognize that not everyone has the same experiences growing up as you or the same cultural, you know, um, history as you. And that's not necessarily learned in school. You know, it's definitely something that comes just living out in the world among people. Um, so I think having that competency is really important to be an effective dietitian. So one of the programs I know that you all have recently kicked off, um, and we've talked about it briefly in some past episodes as well, um, is intuitive eating. I think we actually briefly touched on yeah. it in your episode specifically. Um, but I think it's going to be kind of integral to this this conversation as well. So um, for again, for those who may not have caught that last episode or may have forgotten what it was or just haven't been through intuitive eating, um, can you explain what it is? Yeah. So intuitive eating is uh, a non-diet approach to eating. It is evidence-based and its primary intention is to help you learn how to tune into and trust your body's internal signals um, to make food choices that work for you while working through or working past any kind of self-judgment that might bubble up, um, as well as the external signals of food rules that come along with diet culture. And intuitive eating can help you, can help improve your relationship with food um, with a path of honestly liberation. Uh, It aims to liberate you from guilt. It aims to liberate you from shame and anxiety And all of that guilt and shame and anxiety is usually sort of a a toxic buildup of this diet culture, uh, which can't wait to get into here. But um, it goes along with a lot of positive um, results or a lot of things that can kind of come along with this practice. And I want to make sure that I'm very clear that it is a practice. It's not something like, you know, you start and then you finish. You know, it's it's a lifelong practice. But People who do practice intuitive eating report feeling a lot more engaged, having a higher level of of well-being and life satisfaction, um, more body appreciation, um, and just more pleasure from eating and and report being able to eat a larger variety of foods, particularly if that was something that was troublesome for them in the past. Yeah, I think it's a framework that aligns really well with resilience, especially when you're talking about like how to deal with like the, the guilt and the anxiety and the shame and those types of things that get attached to food as well. Those are, you know, common um, emotions that we experience as human beings. Um, and it, just because it's in the nutrition field doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to um, that broader concept of resilience. So it's something that I've always kind of been intrigued about ever since you all started talking about it. Oh yeah. And that absolutely. Yeah, kind of leads us into, leads us into our topic. So you and I were recently at an event that we were hosting and we had someone come up and really ask us a question that I thought would make a useful topic. Um, and it was basically, it was a resilience question, really. Um, and it was about like facing those sort of societal influences related to nutrition, um, particularly, again, sort of facing that diet culture. And what does that look like when we're, you know, immersed in it, maybe in work um, or at home or in our friend groups or anything like that. Um, so again, I'm kind of taking this question and blowing it up a little bit larger than the actual question that was asked. But we've already kind of briefly touched on intuitive eating. And I know this is one of the principles of it, um, which is really kind of rejecting that diet mentality um, or that sort of diet culture that is so pervasive um, in our worlds. But I think before we get to really answering that question about how do we deal with that, um, it's probably good for us to kind of backtrack a little bit, take a step back and look at sort of the bigger picture um, and first just talk about diet culture in general. So what is it? 
Yeah. So just to sort of, just as an additional little background to you, I, we recognize diet, I recognize diet culture very much in my practice, you know, talking to people. And I don't want to speak for Karen, but I'm sure that she would say the same thing just in our practice at UK, right? Um, we both really felt like we could do more to support our population because most of the people that would want to talk to us wanted to talk about changing their body and the frustration that came along with not being able to do that. And, and that is a huge hallmark of diet culture, right? Um, and coming from it as a, from a nutrition perspective, from that academic nutrition perspective, it actually took a little bit of relearning on my part, certainly, because what we're taught in that, and this is changing, you know, I want to say it is changing, but even, you know, looking at the traditional didactic um, style of learning to be a dietitian, you're immersed in diet culture. You are told that people need to shrink their bodies in order to be healthy, right? Um, and, and we know that intentionally shrinking your body doesn't work long term, if at all, for most people, the majority of people, I mean, the statistic that I keep reading is it works for maybe, maybe 5% of people who attempt it. 5%. <laughs> so 95% of people that are trying to make their body smaller are going to fail long term. And what I just continually saw in our practice is, again, that shame, that frustration, that guilt, and then a lot of fear, too, you know, I mean, people are afraid that they're not going to be around for the people that they love because they are doing something wrong. So I, I want to promote that there are lots of other healthy behaviors that are out there that, that are not weight loss that can um, help people understand that a particular body size or body shape doesn't translate to health, right? Um, but diet culture tells us something different. Okay. Diet culture thinks that we can tell how healthy someone is just by looking at them. Um, it's, it's an entire, entire system of beliefs. Um, there's a lot of it. Okay. And I can go, there's like kind of, <laughs> kind of parts to it, but, um, essentially it worships thinness and it equates that thinness to health, um, and moral virtue. There's a morality attached to this, um, which means that if you are not a thin person, you can spend your whole life thinking that you're broken because you don't look like this, this ideal. Okay. Um, diet culture also promotes weight loss as a means of attaining a higher social status, um, which again makes you feel like you have to spend all of your time and energy and money often trying to make your body smaller. Um, even though, again, that research supports that intentional weight loss fails 95% of the time. It also, diet culture looks at some styles of eating as bad and then elevates other styles of eating as good. So this encourages this very um, hyper-vigilant nature about eating and food um, it encourages shame for making certain food choices, and it makes you feel almost that you can't enjoy eating, right? You can't enjoy food. If you're enjoying your food, then you're doing it wrong. Um, 
diet culture also oppresses people who don't match up with this picture of health that it promotes. Um, this can disproportionately harm uh, people in larger bodies. It can harm black and brown people, people with disabilities, people who are not 25. Um, and, and all, you know, it can just do so much damage, you know, people who are in all kinds of bodies can be damaged both mentally and physically from this way of thinking. So it's, it is oppressive and just, yeah, toxic, really. Yeah, it's really interesting to me to think about it almost like a sign that's like value system to it. It's like part of a value system, like things are good or bad. We've talked about right. this concept even in the past about like our thoughts. Um, and when those arise, like we try to immediately assign them as something as good or bad. I don't know what it is it's, with humans as to like why we try to categorize everything into like good or bad buckets when really there's a whole lot of gray area between a lot of things. Yeah, we crave certainty in the yeah. face of uncertainty. We can't know what's going on, but we think if we can assign good or bad or, or other sort of binary aspects to these things, then somehow it'll it'll make it all feel better. Yeah. And I can see how that then like kind of spirals into that like shame because it's like, oh, I made what is perceived as this bad choice. And then I start to attach that to myself and the shame. And then it kind of is a downward spiral that does then impact, you know, your mental health or your emotional health or anything like that, potentially even your relationship, something that we'll probably dive into in this episode as well. Um, But you, you mentioned like not even being able to like enjoy food at the time. So like, it's like, sort of integral to who you are. Like you've already mentioned um, how much you enjoy like cooking and eating and those types yes. of things. Yes. And, and like, if you, if you like assigned that to like, if you like told somebody what you did, they would think like, oh, you're probably a huge stickler for rules. And like, you don't enjoy eating, <laughs> like who enjoys eating a salad or whatever, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's turning into like something that's like a, a bodily process, something we need to live. Um, and we should have the ability to enjoy into like, work and like not work that you enjoy. (laughs) I know. So it's just, yeah, it's really interesting how, like how, just how pervasive that like culture really becomes. And then like the oppressive nature of that without even realizing, because I don't know how many times like you and Karen have corrected something that I've said that I have no idea that I'm even really saying it related to nutrition. I'll send you all an email and like say something just kind of not even like not even remotely intending to for it to be like a negative. And it's just because it's been so ingrained in our society that I like just immediately say that. And anybody else would have said that, you know, five years ago. And you all have now like brought this intuitive eating into it. And I like love when you all are like, and I'll actually talk about it this way or like reframe this thought process this way. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's, I never would have thought about that. I don't know how I would have gotten to that conclusion on my own. Well, I mean, it's a learning process for us too. You know, I mean, our programming and our thinking have certainly evolved over the last 10 years, you know, that I've been with wellness and, you know, it's, I think just remembering that everyone is learning, you know, I mean, and we certainly aren't going to be like the intuitive eating police, you know, for anybody, but um, it is just so interesting and heartening, honestly, how many people have been receptive to those little nudges, um, to wanting to learn more, to understanding that there is language that is helpful and there is language that is harmful. And I think ultimately, you know, whether we're working with our colleagues at Wellness or within our programming at UK, people want to do the helpful thing. 
you know? Um, so, so that's been really just, uh, really lovely to experience whenever we, we are able to bring intuitive eating programming or our nutrition programming through an intuitive eating lens to the people at UK. Yeah. And I think that's a point we'll dive into, um, towards the latter part of this conversation as we go to answer this question as well. Um, but what, like, what is it about diets that keep us, you know, failing? Like, like we can kind of cognitively know like diets don't work, but like, why, why do we keep turning back to them or why do they continue to, um, sort of pop up in the mainstream culture? Sure. So, I mean, they, it is a part of mainstream culture. It's still mainstream. I mean, intuitive eating is still a little bit, a little fringy, you know, or at least true intuitive eating is. I think it's starting to get into the lexicon of health and health programming, but maybe not so much main mainstream culture. So that's one reason why we fall into diets because they are still everywhere. You know, you still hear that certain foods are bad or other foods are clean. You know, it's on billboards, right? Um, We still think that we need to trick our body into eating less because a magazine headline says it at the checkout, you know, or that um, this new protocol, it's definitely not a diet, you know, but, but it is, you know, Um, or, you know, or we get it from our healthcare providers who automatically prescribe an elimination diet for some reason, you know, without a legitimate medical diagnosis. So it is all around us, but it's also in us too, because just like you were saying earlier, how people don't like gray area and people want to be able to slot something neatly into a good or a bad or otherwise binary position, we feel like when we choose a a diet or a plan or a protocol or not a diet or whatever, that we are doing something good. We are taking control of a situation. We are, this one is going to work, right? And we feel like this sense of elation and this sense of, of excitement. And that excitement is addictive. Yeah. You know what I mean? It lights up our brain in a way that is really hard to deny. Um, So I think that's probably why also we do fall into it, you know? I mean, I recently read a statistic that says 68% of Americans have dieted for some length of time. And I honestly feel like that's low. Um, But, you know, my view is probably skewed due to who I interact with more often, you know? But, um, But even though so many people like kind of intellectually might know better that diets don't work, you know, diets and diet culture is super seductive. Um, we always just think that the right one is, is right around there. And, and honestly too, I mean, if you do change up your eating habits for a short period of time, a lot of times you do lose weight for a short term. You know what I mean? Like people can do just about anything for a short period of time. If it's like a three day or a one week or like 30 day, you know, kind of protocol or whatever, but it's those rebound effects that are dangerous and like rebound weight gain or yo-yoing that kind of forces people who do identify as dieters into this kind of lifelong contract with these behaviors, you know, and these effects that kind of happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's the two things that we are just surrounded by it. It's all over. And, and that strong emotion of feeling or of excitement or feeling like you're in control or feeling like this is it, 
you know, whenever we start a new diet and you crave, you start to crave those, those feelings. Yeah. And I don't know it, whether it's masquerading as health or wellness or connection, um, it's really difficult to deny the pervasiveness of dieting and diet culture. Yeah. That idea of control is really interesting to me as well. Mm -hmm. And just how it like, I mean, you only have so much control anyways, in general. I mean, I think we've known that for a long time. Yeah. Um, but then like the research is now digging even a little further. So that like kind of concept, I think this is probably a, a related that like healthy at every size um, type of concept or was it, it was like a set point theory or something like that? Sure. So, I mean, you know, a lot of it's bound by genetics, you know, I mean, there are all different shapes and sizes of bodies out there and certainly you can't change your biology, right? Um, but weight is just not an action, period, you know, and you can only control your actions. Weight is not something that you can control. You can't look at the scale and be like, be this number, you know, and, and certainly not in a, in a healthy, physically or mentally healthy way. You know, what, what I do see that, that dieting can bring dieting is an action, right? Um, it's the, the action of changing your eating. It's the action of changing your activity habits with the specific weight goal, you know, losing your weight. Um, but what it is a lot more likely to end in are those dangerous behaviors that I alluded to earlier, like um, food obsession. You know, I mean, I love food, but food obsession is a whole other thing. Um, or binging as a response to restriction or, you know, weight regain. Um, and, and that's really what dieting more often ends up in. And that is held up by research, you know, and, and disordered eating also happens. Disordered eating versus eating disorder, you know, those are two different things. But disordered eating is a collection of behaviors. It can be anything from fasting to avoiding major food groups, vomiting or using laxatives as a way to, to control your weight, um, binging as a result of restricting, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and the majority of American women between 25 and 45 years old have some form of disordered eating. That's, I mean, that's like staggering numbers. 65%. Yeah. I mean, and you can see, like, you can see this in, you know, cultural references too. Yeah. Like I, I think about like, I mean, like a iconic movie, like Mean Girls and the character oh of Re <laughs> Regina George. And like, you basically- Is butter like, a carb? <laughs> yeah. You're like describing what, what yeah. that, like what that looks like. Obviously it's a humorous example of like what people go through, but like, right. I mean, that is, that is exactly what you're explaining. She's asking every nutritional question possible. Some of which are like kind of outlandish about of like everything that she's eating. And then she's turning to these bars, like a strictly a bar diet thinking she's going to lose weight. Not right. knowing that she's getting sabotaged, but kind of building on that example, I think it's actually really interesting in how that is presented too, because while it is like a, you know, like a humorous concept um, that is being presented, it still kind of has that underlying like shame because like she's sort of like the bad character of the movie and like they're sabotaging her, you know, weight loss and you are like laughing because she's gaining weight. And so it's like still even though it was well-meaning and it was trying to highlight this, like even that kind of undercurrent of like, 
we're still like laughing or finding joy yes. in schadenfreude and somebody else gaining weight when they don't want to. And like, that's such a good point. Yes. It's uh, the weight gain is the comeuppance of the female villain. Right. And, and I bet if you talk to Tina Fey now, she would regret that whole storyline, yeah. you know, I mean, but that's from, I don't even know what 2008. Yeah. No. It was like mid 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Mid 2000s. Um, and, and the culture is changing, you know, quite a lot, but yes. And so often throughout history, the the person in a larger body, the fat person, was the butt of a joke, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that was it. I mean, there are entire strains of, of comedy, genres of comedy that have nothing else to do except for, you know, look at what the big person does. Yeah. And that's funny because solely because they're in a bigger body. Yeah. You know, how can how can that not make somebody feel like they need to make themselves smaller in order to avoid ridicule or being the butt of a joke. Yeah. It's always concerned me too. And like, I've, I've like felt bad about it because like I am someone who is naturally thin. Like I, it's hard for me to gain weight and I really don't have a whole lot of weight that I could lose. Mm -hmm. And like the number of times, especially working in this field that like people make assumptions that mm -hmm. like I am sort of that picture of health or whatever, mm -hmm. because I am like, a thin, you know, white male or whatever. Right. And you got all sorts of privileges going on. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you like hear that. And it's like, I don't even know, like, how do I respond to that? Because like my cholesterol is not that great. <laughs> like my blood sugar numbers could be better. Like, but if you just looked at me and made that assumption, you would not know that. Yeah. Um, and so that's yeah. always, yeah, that's always like people like just assign it just based on these categories. Again, it's like, we're just lumping you into one category or the other, just based on sort of arbitrary, you know, whatever's been sold to us all these years. Um, oh, that's absolutely. always, that's definitely been something that's been kind of like sort of concerning um, or unsettling for me um, in this field throughout the years. Um, and just trying to learn how to better kind of, you know, dismantle that talk as well again, which is kind of where we're leading to in this, in this uh, conversation. But mm -hmm. you kind of touched on this as well. Um, kind of breaking out into larger wellness culture, what are some of the, like the similarities or differences between diet culture and that sort of broader, you know, wellness culture? I, I think that diet culture has co-opted some ideas of health and wellness, right? Um, but it's, it's made it kind of, it's like, the upside down, right? If you're a fan of Stranger Things, okay? So diet culture is the upside down of health and wellness culture, and it's twisted it into something that is only available to people who look and eat and exercise in a certain way, right? Um, but where health and wellness culture, I think how you and I experience it, right, which is about helping people with their well-being, Diet culture is more about reinforcing the the power structure that already ex that exists and making sure that you keep chasing after like this unattainable ideal so you don't notice all of these other things that are maybe you know harming your health. So like these things like trying to change the size and shape of your body, um, which diet culture tells you to do, but it can actually lead to worse physical and mental health and emotional health outcomes than something like body acceptance, right? Um, or diet culture, a big part of diet culture is this internalized sort of weight stigma, you know? Like that comes from 
movies like Mean Girls or, or other things. Um, and weight stigma, whereas weight has never in research been shown as a cause of a lot of health conditions that it's correlated with or that it's associated with, it's never been able to go back to weight. But something like weight stigma, you know, which has actually been shown to increase people's risk of all the, di- the diseases that are typically blamed on weight because they don't want to go to the doctor because they're tired of being shamed for their weight. But I mean, I think that specifically lately with the kind of guise of diet culture that's pretending to be all about wellness right now, you know, something that, again, specifically is not calling itself a diet. um, It's just as oppressive as the traditional model of weight loss. And side note, it always involves weight loss somehow or thinness as an ideal. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like the, the thinness ideal went away or anything. It's, it's more about, well, if you do these correct things with food or if you cut out these particular foods, then you're going to be on the path to wellness, you know? And, and it's just, I don't know about you, but I feel like in the last five years, it's been really difficult to separate wellness culture and diet culture you know, it's, it's just diet culture under another name. Yeah. And inherently they're, I mean, they're all trying to more or less sell you something. Well, yes, so much. I mean, you know, the wellness diet or wellness culture kind of promises, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know that dieting is bad, but if you do this, you know, and take this pill or read this book or buy this plan, you know, all of your we understand that, you know, you don't, it's not that you just want to get into smaller pants. We understand, we, you just want to be well, you know, and if you do do this, then all of your symptoms will go away. If you do this one thing, or if you do this very set path of things, and it doesn't allow for that gray area. Again, we're not robots. You can't program us to do things. But what this culture tells you is that if you don't follow this correct path of wellness, then you're doing something wrong. When in reality, that path is unattainable for so many reasons, you know, whether it's biological or financial or environmental. So, I mean, it, nothing is going to make all of your symptoms go away. You know, I mean, like there's no magic pill that's going to manage your chronic illness or get you off your medication. You know, as much as we like to think that health is entirely within our control, it's not. No, it's, it's just not, I think the, I think the other kind of danger in both of those two is that they like sell you an end goal that like you're going to attain something and then you're, you've already kind of mentioned it. You're, you're done. Like you hit it. Like I lost this 10 pounds that I wanted to lose. Yeah. All is well, everything's good. Like it, it kind of takes out the, the process of life and cause it's really not how it works. Like there, there's really not like nothing really has this kind of finite into it. Um, especially if you think about a concept like growth mindset, it's like you can always continue to in, improve things. And so that can kind of get you on this cycle, um, that you like, if you don't attain it, that's when those things like shame and anxiety start to come back in too, is because you, you kind of had it in your head that you were going to hit this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you hit this moment, everything was going to be good. Well, there, I mean, there could have been, you know, kind of some short term joy or something in whatever it was that you hit. But like, in reality, you're going to kind of 
move your way back. And so that's a concept actually called the hedonic treadmill, where it's like basically like the highs and the lows, we always still sort of kind of fall back to this like happiness set point. So there's some, you know, contrasting arguments to this idea, but just kind of as a general framework, um, it makes a lot of sense that like, and you could probably think of examples in your life of like, if I just lose five pounds, I'm going to be happier or feel better about myself. And you hit that five pounds and like, you might have a little bit of fleeting joy, but like, did that actually change your happiness overall? Yeah. And and I think too, going along with that, with weight specifically, is that we're told that our happiness or we're taught to believe that our happiness is directly linked to our body size or to our weight for so many different reasons in our culture, when in reality, it's related to something completely different, right? So not only are you being encouraged to not focus on the factors that are creating your unhappiness, but you're being told specifically that it is this other thing, which really has no um, connection with control at all, you know? So, I mean, it's like a double whammy. And what, again, is another insidious thing about, about diet culture in terms of oppression is it encourages you to ignore all of these other factors that are making us unhappy. And it just says, no, 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 just zero in on carbs. Like, that's the problem, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it just sort of keeps us complacent. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like how it, it just really narrows your focus when, mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's so many things that are going to go into your happiness and that will go into your overall, you know, physical health as well. Um, and it's not, it's literally not just weight. <laughs> it's not nope. just, it's not just physical activity. It's not just what you put into your body. There's so many things that are contributing to that, which could be, as you've alluded to already and mentioned that like, it could just be like a stigma that you're fighting and how that is affecting you physically absolutely um, so it, yeah it's there's so much again so much more gray area to all of this um where it's like you know these wellness diets um so to speak are really just trying to really oversimplify everything and, and tell you that like once you hit it you're good and it go and if you don't hit it then it's your fault yeah exactly yeah that's a big thing too if you don't hit this artificial definition of wellness or of health then it then it's your fault because it's telling you, you have the power to really change it and to do something about it and you have control. And, you know, that's obviously like a super seductive message, like I mentioned, but it flips and becomes just as harmful when you find out that's not how life works. That's not how your body works. You can't just turn a dial and set it at a point, you know, and then you just continue to believe that you're some kind of failure and not worth it. You know, so in order to do that, you try to exercise even more control in order to change that. And it just becomes this horrible, horrible, vicious cycle. But it's it has so much to do with with diet culture, making people feel like a failure. Yeah. And again, sort of assigning your like self-worth to whether you achieve that or not, um, yes. or whether you are a certain size or you look a certain way or what have you, um, or even I mean, you can look at this you know, culturally in general, like if you wear a certain thing, um, it like, is, is your, you know, self-worth attached to that? Or, but I mean, we, I think we do that to ourselves too, that like we attach again, sort of that concept of like, our thoughts are really not good or bad. They're really just things that naturally occur. Um, and they are pieces of data for us to understand more and kind of get to the root of like, why might I be thinking this? I don't know. It's just, I see a lot of parallels, I guess, between 
like what we get sold to us in sort of this wellness culture, but then how that looks specifically in diet. And I'm like curious as to like which one sort of came first. Mm -hmm. And I think too, something you just said just made me think about this, that stigma exists certainly about emotional health and mental health in such a way that we're being told that it's okay to have particular feelings maybe and and more so than even 5 or 10 years ago right where there's a more sort of welcoming atmosphere to a spectrum of emotions let's say but people don't necessarily have the time or the resources to be able to explore what this spectrum of emotions of strong feelings of strong emotions what it means and how to explore ditching any shame or guilt for what this these emotions might bring to their lives right so on the one hand we're being told yeah you know you really should work on that but on the other hand it's like yeah but we're not going to be able to give you the resources to do that you know and i think that that I don't, I don't have an answer there. Like, I mean, that's such a systemic change that needs to happen. I hope that there are steps being laid to get there, but I feel like that's, that's just such a trap that a lot of people aren't able to climb up out of. And it's a very individualized journey too, which I think is something else that like happens with these like wellness diets, like it's a one size fits all approach that like, if mm -hmm. you cut out all these carbs, it's going to work perfectly for you. And I think that's, I think that's part of the issue with like, you know, it only working for 5% of people. It's like, yeah. because we just have this assumption um, that, that it's going to work for us because it worked potentially for someone else that like, yeah. we're going to be in that 5% when statistically we're not even close to being in that 5%. There's a whole 95% of other of us that that's not going to work for. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's something too. like, I'll see people on an individual basis. And, you know, a friend or someone they know, you know, is, is having success with keto, say, you know, and so, you know, there's, there's nothing like a new convert, right? Um, so this, this person's coming to us and saying, well, should I go on keto? My friend is loving it. Like, you know, they, they've always wanted to eat this way or something. And, I, and so my first question would be like, well, do you like carbohydrates? You know, and I'm not being facetious when I ask that. I'm like, well, do you like carbs? And they're like, well, yeah, I love, love carbs. You know, and it's like, well, then keto is not for you. You know, I mean, because it's asking you to be the complete opposite of, of what you are. I mean, keto allows 5 to 10% of your total daily calories coming from carbohydrates. You know, it's like a piece of bread. You know, so I mean... Is that to say that keto is going to be bad for everyone? And I am not recommending it. But I mean, there is going to be that person out there who is like, yeah, I hate carbs. Don't like them. Don't care about them. I would be totally happy eating this keto style or this insert X style here for the rest of my life. Of course. But it's important to be able to access what's important to you and what your own values are before you embark on any change like that. Because... What diet culture does is it, it tells you that it knows best mm -hmm. when in reality you do know what, what you need best. You know how your body works. 
you know what is going to be good for you and what's going to be bad for you. But um, diet culture tells you otherwise. And then it just erodes what little trust you might have left in yourself. Yeah. And you're, I mean, you're, you're talking about the trade-off too of like falling into this trap and like this messaging has been sort of sold to you that like, this is the way. And you're like, well, I, if this is the way I got to do it, but like, right. you're so unhappy, you know, doing it, like that's the trade-off. Like if you're, right. if you're unhappy doing it, yeah, you may see some results potentially and right. what you're striving for, like what the original sort of goal was for that. That's never going to be a long-term change for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. It may not be a long-term change, but then what else are you sacrificing in the process too? So it's like, is that really a long-term goal? Exactly. And what kind of stress is that sacrifice bringing you? And we know what the effects of chronic stress has on you. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it's just, it's going to work backwards for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that like yo-yo damage that you were talking about earlier of just like those sort of swings back and forth. It's like this endless pursuit, this this hedonic treadmill is mm -hmm. like it's sacrificing other parts of us, which could actually be affecting our you know long-term happiness or our ability to thrive or sort of whatever metric it is that you want to look at um, in your overall life. Right. And again, just like I said in the beginning too, there are so many other health measures that have zero to do with weight and body size, you know, but they get it, they get tossed aside when we're talking about diet culture. And I think that's the intentional shift that we've had as a unit in the last, you know, five years or so. It started mm -hmm. before I even arrived here, but um, just seeing that shift in how we've like named programming or what we've focused on or what we've gotten rid of because we knew it was not serving the purpose that we wanted it to serve. I mean, yeah. I think about like you all, what was it used to be called what, like weight loss matters or something? Weight loss matters. What, like eight to 10 years ago, something like that? Yep. Well, when I started, yeah, yeah. Weight loss matters. I mean, so you can see that, like you can see that shift in like of us, like really trying to be intentional in what we're doing and how we think about that. And even the concept of like treating you as the expert and like that individualized journey for you, like you ultimately are going to know what is best for you. And we're here to support. We're not here to tell you exactly. what to do specifically. We want to facilitate, facilitate and support. Yep. Yep. So we're kind of inundated with all these like, you know, misleading diet and wellness culture messages. So where do they like, where does it kind of lead us as like the unfortunate consumer of them? Right. So it is that feeling of being stuck. It is going to be that feeling of not really knowing where to turn. And I think that what you were saying um, just earlier about being able to access, whether it is wellness programming through work or a health professional that is going to be aligned with the health at every size movement, or whether it's specifically seeking out anti-diet messaging, that is where I would say you're going to be able to find a little bit of, of an island in this kind of mess of, of misleading and messaging. I think the phrase anti-diet, or as you said at the beginning to a non-diet approach, um, I think that's important to maybe explain as well, because I feel like it could be another one of those like misleading terms without the, the sort of context to go around it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. So anti-diet or an anti-diet mindset, it's eating that's not based on a diet. It's eating on, based on not counting calories or eating without a desire for weight loss. It's eating, again, according to those, that framework of intuitive eating, right? Eating according to your body signals, 
according to your tastes, what you prefer, your inner cues. Um, it is eating with self-compassion and body acceptance in mind, which is not always the same as body love, but certainly body acceptance. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like it was important to to do that because that again, where that messaging has been so ingrained in us that like I kind of like almost feel like I catch myself like hearing the word anti diet or whatever, and it's just like it, it almost like gives you that feeling of going back to like lacking control and lacking self discipline, um, and or just that general apathy and just not caring about about yourself even. And, and that's not really what it is. So no, I mean, we needed to make that distinction as well. Yeah. But yeah. So kind of, kind of breaking it out into our relationships as well and sort of tying into that initial question, how does like this wellness diet trap potentially affect our relationships with others? Yeah. I feel like it can be difficult since our culture is so inundated with diet culture I mean, just like you were saying earlier about, you know, you being of a certain body size and shape, certain privileges are automatically conferred upon you because of those, either that you're, you have specific health conditions or don't have specific health conditions or that you know the secret or you know the answer to, you know, whatever, living forever, you know. <laughs> but um, so I think that this sort of culture, this diet culture can trap people into believing that, you know, they may not have as valuable a relationship or be perceived as being worthy of having a valuable relationship with other people because they are being othered, you know, by this, this definition of, of healthy, because they're not seen as having the perfect body or the perfect size or, or something like this, you know? So I think some people will put themselves kind of away from relationships with others because just as a self-protection measure. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of going back to like categorizing things in very black and white too. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I think it's, it's just, if you're on this path and you're like, or, and I think this is where the original question was stemming from is like, if you're on this path, and you're, you're around other people who are not necessarily on this path and they're still kind of stuck in that cycle or in that sort of messaging. Um, it can be really, really challenging. And I think it can strain your relationships um, and how how you approach it and how they approach it. And um, I, I mean, I, I can see how that would be very difficult for someone who is taking like an anti, you know, non-diet approach mm -hmm. to eating. And then you mm -hmm. go into the rest of the world again, um, mm -hmm. or at least a majority of the rest of the world. Um, and you see those messages everywhere. And so I think that's where that sort of concept of resilience is sort of heading towards. So I think that's kind of, we've kind of set the stage now, I think, to really kind of answer that question. Yep. Um, but I think we'll probably, I think we probably need to look at it in two different ways as well. So kind of how we personally deal with it um, and that sort of resilience aspect of it, but then how we sort of help correct that culture when we hear and see it within others. Right. So, right. Without losing all our friends, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I feel like personally dealing with being inundated with diet culture, whether you are someone who experiences diet culture from, you know, one side of it as not feeling like you're 
underneath diet culture, like it doesn't have its foot upon you, or if you do feel like you are, um, it's easy to sort of fall back into this narrative, you know, just like what you were saying before about how you appreciate how we've kind of encouraged maybe other language, you know, when, when talking about weight or nutrition, um, I think it's important again, to recognize that everyone is learning all of the time. Okay. And that no one is going to a get things right the first time or B get things right. And then stop like, yep, got it. Check. You know, it's always going to be this practice, um, which is really a definition of resilience, right? That ability to continually just sort of practice something to not feel like you are on or off course. You know, you're just always able to sort of bounce back depending on, you know, what's being thrown at you. So I think a a lot of us, most of us probably have some amount of resilience, but we might be able to access it differently or we might have resilience in some part of our life but not in other parts of our life. So to figure out if you have enough to deal with like this social construct of diet culture or wellness culture or whatever um, can be really challenging. I, you know, I mentioned earlier that not everyone has, you know, the time to, to change things or the money, or they maybe have other chronic stressors or social conditioning is just really difficult to, to get out of you know, but, but it really is, it doesn't have to be out of reach, you know, looking back at all the topics that your podcast has covered already, you know, it all has to do with resilience. And so thinking about what factors of resilience that you might be able to improve, whether it's communication with others, whether it's flexibility while making plans, you know what I mean? Whether it's having a supportive network of friends and family or restoring your ability to make decisions, you know, like remembering that you have autonomy, you know, or remembering your why. All of those are going to be aspects of resilience that you can access when you feel like you're falling back into this you know, narrative of diet culture hitting you over the head. You know what I mean? So if any of those that I mentioned are things that you feel like you could work on, then that that might be a place to start. Yeah, I think like I mentioned the hedonic treadmill and I, I actually read an article recently about how like this is actually probably not the best way to think about it. You really should kind of be thinking about it as like a current or a river sure. um, that's like always moving and you're going somewhere else. But like if you think about like sort of the positive on being on one shore of that river and the negative being the other shore of that river, it's like you're using those tools to try to spend more time on the side of the shore that you want to spend on, but you're inevitably going to sometimes end up on the other one, but you're always sort of kind of moving, yes. moving forward. And so that's where you're like taking these concepts, um, these general concepts of resilience. and like, how do I apply these when I like cognitively know that diet culture is not good? And then how do I, how do I turn that around um, sure. to, to not get sucked back into that and end up on the side of the river that I don't want to be on? Well, even that side of the river in intuitive eating anyway, and I think in resilience too, if you look at that the, that negative side of the river as like a setback or something, it is about seeing that setback and 
not stuffing it away because it's still going to be an opportunity for growth, right? And I think resiliency is going to be the ability to reframe that side of the whip, the river as a point of reference that you can grow from. Yeah. You know, and also knowing that that side of the river is going to be passing you by again pretty quickly, depending on how fast that current is. You know, that setback is going to be temporary. There's not going to be one setback or one moment that wrecks everything, you know? And I say this all the time, like just like eating a salad one time does not make you a vegetarian, you know, eating a cheeseburger doesn't make you completely an unhealthy monster that doesn't deserve love, you know? I mean, so, but people will think this way if they are, you know, stuck in diet culture. These cognitive distortions that happen like that, part of resilience and getting out of diet culture is recognizing those cognitive distortions as what they are and seeing them and hearing them, but then taking that extra step and saying, that's not true, you know, calling it out. Um, and then, then you can examine where it's coming from and examine how to reframe it for next time. So what about like, our ability to help change that culture. What do we, what do we do to sort of help <laughs> dispel diet culture? Um, again, sort of thinking about that balance of like our friendships and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you got to pick your battles overall. Okay. So it's not always going to be the right time to challenge somebody, but I do have some ideas here. <laughs> Um, first of all, too, I want to say, if you are in the health profession in any way, please give evidence-based interventions to people in larger bodies, just as you would to people who are in smaller bodies. Okay. So if someone's coming in and they're having knee pain, if they are a larger bodied person, don't have lose weight, be the first thing that comes out of your mouth, please. If you are a patient in a larger body and you're feeling, feeling pretty good that day or just practice, ask your healthcare provider if she or he would say the same person, the same thing to a person in a smaller body. All right. So make sure that the messaging is going to be the same no matter what number is on the scale. And speaking of the scale, um, it's about 90% likely that you do not have to be weighed at your doctor visit. You can change the culture by asking if it's necessary to be weighed, by saying you prefer not to be weighed, okay? If they insist, you can say that you would not like to know the number. You can turn around and not face the scale. But more and more, I see people who are actually doing this during healthcare provider visits. So that's a way to change the culture. Of course, there are exceptions, like if you're on a medication that has a weight-determined dosage, um, but but normalizing this behavior is a way, is a small way to change diet culture. Um, and if you are in a straight size or in a smaller body, normalize not being weighed by you doing that too. Okay. Um, getting rid of your scale at home is another way to do that. Um, but if you're, if your colleagues, if it's of a social nature, right? If your colleagues are coming up to you talking about diets or talking about supplements, um, it can be, Really frustrating in the moment if you are committing to living an anti-diet lifestyle. So the first thing is to remember that they are people. 
that they are humans, that there are lots of other things about them that you can connect with them with about besides what they're eating or how they're exercising. And so maybe thinking about that or verbalizing that somehow, right? So if your coworker comes up to you and starts talking about like this app that he or she is using and how they love counting their calories and you really don't want to be having like a life-changing conversation with them, you can just acknowledge like probably the reason why they're coming up to you and telling you about this is that they're feeling good about themselves right now. And so you can reinforce that by saying, I am so glad that that's working out for you. Right. And then change the subject. <laughs> you know. So another way that's going to be a little bit more direct, and this can have to do with where, what your audience is, or if you're dealing with someone on an individual basis rather than like a whole group, you know, um, you can be transparent with your own needs and with your own journey and with your own um, thoughts, you know, and this is where, and this comes up a lot in communication, right? Using those I statements instead of using those you statements, mm -hmm. right? So you can say something like, I'm really working on my relationship with food. I am challenging a lot of long held beliefs that I have had, right? I've realized that talking about these things is really hard for me and not something I'm interested in. Would it be okay if we don't talk about this stuff for a while? You know, so you are not only using those I statements, but the way that you're framing that last question is the other person's going to feel that they are helping you by not talking about these diets or calorie apps or whatever. And most people, like I said in the beginning, want to be helpful. They want to be helpers. Yeah. Right. So obviously playing around with this language. So it sounds like something coming out of your mouth, you know, is important. And then. You get to decide how much you want to share about what journey you're on, of course. Um, but just maybe say enough so they feel like they're supporting you by not talking about those things. Um, and then thirdly is avoidance. You know, I mean, sometimes you just have to leave the conversation. This can happen sometimes if you feel like maybe a work superior is initiating the conversation and you don't feel like you either want to share personal things or be kind of like direct with them, you know, um, or maybe it's really hard for you to set boundaries and you're working on that. Um, leaving can feel hard, leaving the conversation, but remember if it helps to give yourself this power, you do not have any kind of responsibility to hold space for anyone who's stuck in diet culture. If you don't want to have those conversations, you can physically get up and leave. Okay. If you need to say, you got to go to the bathroom or if you want to mute the conversation, if you're on zoom or turn off your camera, you know, pretend like your cat is doing crazy things behind you. That's fine. You know, so that's always going to be an option. But then the opposite of that, if you really want to get into it and, and educate people about diet culture, this is usually something that people will do when they're maybe further along in their journey, you know. Um, it's something that you can experiment with. Certainly leading with the personal here, as that's going to be the most effective in getting people to hear you out, is what I would recommend. Um, but just being very honest and saying, you know what, I used to be really messed up around food. 
but I'm not anymore. And what has really helped me is learning more about diet culture. And then you can kind of like take a pause, see what they say. You can say, you know, I can share some of what I've learned. If they say yes, if they feel open to it, then you can go on. Uh, it's always going to be hard though. I mean, there's always going to be certain workplaces or dinner tables or conferences where it will or will not be appropriate. And part of this journey is figuring that out. But knowing that you have options, I think, is is going to be helpful. Yeah. And not among any of those options was like flipping the script and shaming them for being stuck in that diet culture. So those I did I not mention that one. Yeah, yeah. Those I statements are really great at yeah. keeping that from happening when you can talk about your experience. Um, it, it keeps it in a much more positive way and they don't immediately go on the defensive as well. So exactly. I think that's a really great way and a really great lesson in general and how we have conversations with other people. So what other resources do you recommend for people to dive deeper um, around everything that we've talked about today, particularly related to say intuitive eating and diet culture? Sure. So certainly um, the intuitive eating program, uh, it exists. It's a research-based framework. You can go on the website, um, www.intuitiveeating.org to learn a little bit more about the 10 principles that govern this framework. You can um, get the book or the workbook, which is full of practices um, written by the two dietitians that came up with this framework 25 years ago. So you can start there. Um, if you want to read more about intuitive eating and anti-diet culture from not completely within the intuitive eating framework, but sort of using it, um, the book Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison is great. I just reread it um, in preparation for our chat today, and uh, it's, it's fantastic. And it, it's a, one of those books where you can pick it up and put it down. And let's see. There uh, is another book, uh, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, which is very powerful. That's by Sabrina Strings. Um, the Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, if you are more of a blog and less of a book person, Christy Harrison also has a blog called Food Psych. Um, she has a podcast of the same name. Um, she has got a great episode of a podcast uh, called, if you can probably do a search, How You Can Help Fight Diet Culture in Your Life. Um, that can maybe be helpful for some people. Um, another podcast that I love and I know you know, is Maintenance Phase. Um, <laughs> they're fantastic at just sort of tearing down diet culture and just doing a lot of really eye-opening deep dives into other parts of American and European culture. Um, Alyssa Rumsey, A-L-I-S-S-A, -S -S -A, Alyssa. Her blog um, at AlyssaRumsey.com is fantastic. She also has a post on how to respond to diet talk that was very powerful. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, it's a pretty good list. I'll, um, I'll link to all those in the show notes as well. So um, okay. the specific things that you mentioned, um, the books and all that, any of the specific posts or episodes and anything like that, um, I'll grab all of those um, so they're easy to find for you in the show notes as well. 
Okay. Um, but I believe the last time you were on here, we had not started the Wildly Resilient playlist, um, which you can now find on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube Music. So it's your chance to contribute. So what song would you put on there that brings about a sense of resilience to you? Okay, so I did think about this, and I have an eclectic list. I have several. Can I name several? You get two. I get two. Okay, okay. I'll give you one for your previous episode. Okay. All right. I'm going to say Feeling Good by Nina Simone, and... I'm going to say three. Sorry. It's going to be a tie. I think feeling good's already on there. So that well, maybe that was a freebie. Right. Okay. Uh, Dog Days Are Over by Florence and the Machine. Ooh, that's a good one. And a new one-ish, Good as Hell by Lizzo. I'm sure it's on there too. It's not actually. I'm what? surprised. Lizzo has not made an appearance yet. So what? that's. I think it was a perfect perfect example for this, for this podcast episode. Yes. Ah, I, you cannot listen to Lizzo and not feel amazing. Perfect. Well, I will add those two on there. And if for some reason I'm incorrect and feeling good, I know Nina Simone is definitely on the playlist. Um, for some reason, feeling good is not on there. I will add it on there for sure. But yeah, so we're down to the last word. What's the one thing that you hope listeners take away from this conversation? Yeah, that you're not doing it wrong. You are not doing it wrong. You know, if you feel like you're trying all of the the things that you're supposed to try. Um, it's it's the thing's fault. It's not you. You know, and and if you want to have a conversation about that, please reach out to us, and uh, we're happy to sort of walk you through it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for sharing your knowledge on dispelling diet culture, um, and I'm sure we'll we'll have you and Karen back on in the future. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jacob. That'll do it for this episode. Hopefully you have a better understanding of diet culture and can now recognize it when it pops up in your life. I encourage you to further explore intuitive eating and an anti-diet approach to nutrition so that you feel that you have the empathy and tools you need to respond to diet culture messages with compassion, whether that be toward yourself or others. If you would like additional nutritional support, University of Kentucky employees, retirees, and their respective spouses can meet with one of our two in-house dietitians for a free consult. They also offer free workshops, weekly programs, and more throughout the year. Finally, as always, you can check out the show notes to find links to anything mentioned in the episode, as well as a link to the HR calendar. There you'll be able to browse any additional work life and well-being events from University of Kentucky Human Resources. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and stay well. Thanks for listening to Becoming Wildly Resilient, a podcast series from University of Kentucky Human Resources, Health and Wellness. The UK HR Health and Wellness team, consisting of certified health coaches, fitness experts, registered dietitians, and wellness specialists, offer a wide range of online and in-person programming to University of Kentucky employees, retirees, and their spouses. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen and subscribe to future episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching at UKY Wellness. There, you'll find links to episode show notes and more. You can also email healthandwellness at uky.edu with any questions or suggestions for future episode topics. To learn more about well-being benefits offered by University of Kentucky Human Resources, 
visit www.uky.edu slash HR slash well-being. Live well.